Good morning, church. What a timeless and beautiful song communicating a timeless, many timeless and beautiful truths. Welcome to Calvary Monument Bible Church today. I'm so glad that you're worshiping with us here this morning. We have a memory verse for the month of September, and this is our last Sunday. So let's say it together. It's 1 Corinthians 10, 26. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, 1 Corinthians 10, 26. And we'll have a new verse next month. Thank you so much for following along and participating with us in memorizing and hiding God's word in our heart. I wonder this morning, have anyone or has anyone here been in any uncomfortable situations recently? I'll name a few. Perhaps you were out eating recently with a co-worker, maybe your boss, a family member, a friend, and in the course of your meal, while in the midst of conversation, unbeknownst to them, a piece of lettuce got stuck in their teeth. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, that's an uncomfortable and awkward situation. What do you do? Do you tell them? Do you let them know? Well, you know you should let them know, but it's kind of awkward to make them aware of that reality. Have you ever been at a conference? I, I experienced this on more than one occasion. A conference, a concert, a public event, maybe even a Sunday morning church service where someone got up to share, not realizing their zipper was down. Yeah, I was actually in a Sunday morning service once when that happened. And you know, the problem in that particular service was that the lights were down. And what makes that particularly hard for the speaker is that they can't see anyone they're talking to who's trying to warn them of the reality that they are painfully unaware of whether it's mayonnaise on a lip that we don't know about dirt on our face toilet paper stuck to the back of a shoe making someone aware of a difficult reality that they are either happily or comfortably unaware of can be difficult it can be unsettling and it can be even outright uncomfortable to us this and yet, love demands. Love demands that we come alongside of others. And we help them see blind spots. Not as ones who do not have any ourselves, but as ones who have seen or are seeing our own and are open to finding more. And having more of our own revealed. Samuel does this with Saul in the Old Testament. Nathan you remember, approached David and did it with him. Paul in Antioch actually does it with Peter, a fellow apostle. And he'll do it again in our text here today with the faith community that was existing in Corinth. There were some in the Corinthian church who were dangerously unaware regarding the path that they were treading on. It was a path where they, as the self-proclaimed knowers, had indulged in their freedoms. They had demanded their rights and they fought for their place in the front of the line. Well, Paul here, in a move to push against these attitudes and these behaviors that 
really uh, were elevating freedom and the demanding of rights and being in the front, he, he's made a plain illustration at the beginning of chapter 8 of giving up rights and freedoms. He actually then at the beginning of chapter 9 gives an example from his own ministry. Yep, still not working. I'll come back to that later. Of how he demonstrated laying down his own rights. And he has shown for us how to pursue the true freedom that comes in last place as a servant to all for the sake of the gospel and a share of its blessings. As Paul concluded chapter 9, he was concerned that through his attitudes or behaviors, he himself might become disqualified. Much like the group, much like a group that he's going to remind us of throughout chapter 10. Over the course of the next few weeks, we are going to do well to remember that we as a people of God are not too dissimilar from the Hebrew people or the people of God in Corinth. Church, we are all people of the Exodus. Freed from the slavery of sin, we sojourn in this wilderness of earth with the hope of the promised land set before us. And while we are here, sin is lurking. Like a specter in the shadows, attitudes of pride and behaviors that are steeped in self-reliance, self-assurance and self-certainty threaten to ruin our testimony or even worse, disqualify us, proving that we were never truly free at all. What does Paul want the people of God in Corinth? And us to learn from the examples of those who have gone before. And how can the difficult examples of those who have gone before us. Difficult examples written down for our instruction. Inform how we might live as disciples of Jesus. And function together as his church. In an overwhelmingly unbelieving world. For the answers to these questions. We turn in our text today. You want to take your Bibles. We begin 1 Corinthians chapter 10 today. We're in the first 13 verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. And we're going to pray, and we're going to ask the Lord to superintend not only over our service, but over our technology as well. And maybe when we're done praying, we'll find that it all is submitting to His will. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this corporate activity that we can gather around your scriptures. Scriptures that are eternally relevant, always for us. Guiding, instructing, teaching. Lord, we approach your text today with an example. With an illustration. One that's not to be far off from us, but rather to be near. That we are to learn from. Lord, we're not much different than those who have gone before. Would you teach us from Paul's words today? Would you help us to know how we might be able to use them, or you might use them within us to help us grow in a greater love for you and a greater love for each other? We give you the glory for our time together today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Word of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. 
And all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did. And they were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they're written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So to make us aware, Paul is going to draw us back towards the Israelites as they escaped the oppression of slavery and fled into the wilderness. And once in the wilderness, God endeavored to comfort and to ease their insecurity and fear with a powerful and a miraculous demonstration of his presence among them. Now, take, take stock and think about the way that in our culture and in our world today, we bring comfort and security to a newborn baby. What do we do when there's a newborn in our family and they're feeling insecure and they're crying and they're uncomfortable? We take a blanket and we wrap them up or we cover them in it. And just as that, Paul notes the Old Testament account affirms that God drew a cloud over his people. The Hebrew people newly freed are safe, secure, warm, and loved by their faithful and caring father, God. Tells us in Exodus chapter 13, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and night. Psalm 105 says it this way. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. In the blanket of clouds and the pillar of fire, if, if they weren't enough, as the Hebrew people approached this final obstacle that stood between their enslaver and freedom, we remember the account of Moses lifting his staff as they stood before the sea. And what happened to the walls of the water? They rose on either side. And through God's miraculous stoppage of water, the Hebrew people made their final escape into the wilderness. 
In verse 2 of our text, Paul is using this imagery of baptism and it's with great purpose and he's drawing many parallels for us here. Through these events, the events of the cloud and the pillar of fire and the separation of water, the Hebrew people who weren't yet called Israelites were baptized into Moses. The uncommon God that they served and the miraculous experiences that they shared under his presence actually united them as a people. They were, in a way, washed and set apart by the passing through of the waters, now belonging to and identifying as the people of Yahweh. And what we come to see once again Throughout this letter, we've seen it. It's a beautiful and powerfully relevant theme that flows like a stream weaving in and out of each chapter of Paul's words in this book is this reality, and we'll continue to explore it in chapter 10. Because of Jesus, the things we share, church, are far more important and valuable than the things that separate or threaten to separate and divide us. Let me say that again. Because of Jesus, the things that we share are far more important and valuable than the things that threaten to separate or divide us. As the Hebrew people passed through the water and were covered by the cloud, they were baptized into Moses. And in a similar way, church, we are baptized into Christ and put on Christ. Galatians 3, 27. And as we look back on these monumental events in the formation of the Hebrew people, as Paul takes our minds back to them, forming them into an Israelite nation, we look ahead to the words that Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 5, when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The water reminding us of the sea, the Spirit reminding us of the cloud. We might also recall Paul's words that we've already explored in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. All of this, and yet it wasn't just the cloud or just the water through which God demonstrated both his presence and his provision among the people. Look down at verses three to four. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Paul's comprehensive knowledge of the Old Testament is spilling out across these pages in this portion of his letter as he's making use of all different tones and shades from Exodus and Deuteronomy. And we remember the account as we think back to the wilderness of manna, the bread that rained from heaven and provided food. And we also remember the rock that followed the people that provided water for them in the wilderness. But here Paul's alluding to something that we practice 
in the church. Something the Corinthians practiced back then and something that we still practice today. And it is the Lord's Supper. Church, what is beautiful about the Lord's Supper is that we all are proclaiming that we share in one and the same body and blood of Christ. It's a reminder of his sacrifice, but also of the blessed hope of his soon coming return. The Lord's Supper, as we'll examine further next week, is a blessed birthright available to all sons and daughters of God. One that will spend a considerable and Paul will spend a considerable amount of time in this letter dealing with and unpacking. The rock that Paul is referring to is still with us today. He's the rock of our salvation. He's alive. He was present with the Hebrew people in the first exodus. And he's present with us in the wilderness that we inhabit here on earth today. And his presence, church, his presence is still prolific. It's enduring. It's comforting. And it's calming. Yet, just like the Israelites, we do not always live in light of these blessed realities. Fear overwhelms. Anxiety grows. Uncertainty envelops. We grasp at security and the things of this world only to see them pulled away or to slip from our grasp. We grow desperate. We start to rely on our own knowledge, our own strength, our own efforts, our own expertise. Our own experiences. We find satisfaction or even revel in unbiblical descriptions of freedom. We indulge and are consumed with this idea of needing to protect or preserve temporal rights. Even with the hope of heaven set before us and the gift of eternal life secured. And the God-given identity as beloved sons and daughters of God through Jesus. We still, friends... Find space to grumble. And we grumble about all kinds of things. Do we not? There's a lot of grumbling, by the way, that takes place in our house. We have seven kids. And uh, I can tell you, rarely a moment goes by when either one of them or mom and dad aren't grumbling. A lot of grumbling. All of these beautiful realities that we live in, and yet we still find space to complain and friends, this is hard. We're going to get uncomfortable the next few weeks together. This is what Paul's doing in the text, and we need to do it as a congregation. But we grumble about the government. We grumble about masks. We grumble about vaccines. We grumble about change. We put our Lord to the test. And we do this as if God's pristine testimony of faithfulness throughout history is in danger. Or as if we must protect or defend him. As if Jesus' promises that he will build his church can somehow be thwarted or put asunder by the ways of man. As if his spirit, which he sent into the world, is not still active and and. Working at regenerating and convincing and convicting and sanctifying his church. We do this as if the same power that conquered the grave is not still alive and well and active within each one of us today. 
church, from time to time, we all do this. Some seasons more than others. Fear overcomes faith. And we become a bit too comfortable with worshiping the idol of ourselves and our own ways. And though their context and their circumstances were different, the Hebrew people chased the exact same idols and God was not pleased. Look at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, talking about this group that he had freed and led into the wilderness, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Paul iterates in verse 6 that what took place in the wilderness was written down for us with a purpose. Look at what he said. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And the question we might ask is, what was the evil that the Hebrew people desired? In Egypt, the gods were abundant. They were visible. They were among the people representing themselves as statues and pyramids. The people could see them. They could touch them. They were icons that had been made with human hands. And now feeling alone and desperate in a foreign and uncertain wilderness. Who and where was their God? The proverbial honeymoon period for their once great and iconic leader, Moses, was over. The moment they crossed through those waters, they were scared. And where was Moses? Where was Moses when they began to worship the golden calf? He disappeared onto the heights of a mysterious mountain. What is happening? What is next? Who are we as a people? Where are we going to live? Where will we raise our children? How are we going to feed ourselves? Who's going to protect us? Who is going to be our leaders? What code is going to guide us? How will we find law and order? Moses, where are you? God, where are you? Are you listening? Do you even care? Church. When life gets confusing and the Lord seems far off or the situation appears out of control, we as humans often take matters into our own hands. Paul reminds in verse 7, look at what he says. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. He's taking them back to that place. He's taking them back to that moment in the wilderness where the golden calf was fashioned by human hands. Exodus chapter 32, they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Next thing we know, not only is there a golden calf to worship, but the revelry of sexual sin came to define the nature of their relationships. 
In other words, the Hebrews were not turning to God for their comfort. They were not turning to God for their dependence. They were not turning to God for their security. Rather, they were looking for much more comfortable idols and false security together with this false sense of belonging that's often related to sexual indulgence and sexual sin. What of the Corinthians? They struggled with the idolatry of knowledge as well as the idolatry that was part of pagan temple worship. Some had failed to recognize what they were actually participating in when they indulged their freedoms and went to pagan temples to eat meat, sacrificed to idols, something that we'll cover next week. Their knowledge that idols were nothing was destroying and devouring the consciences of new believers and it was ruining their own witness or testimony and they seemed to care very little about it. It was their right. It was their freedom to do what they wanted. Their craving for meat was stronger than their craving to love their brothers and sisters in Christ by laying down their rights and freedoms for the cause of the gospel. And church sexual sin factored in as well. We've Read often through this letter, Paul addressing problems coming into the church that were related to sexual sin and disoriented relationships. And closely following the sin of idolatry, so often we find the sin of careless indulgence. When we are so focused on meeting our own needs and being our own Lord and Master, we sometimes care very little about how it might affect or influence someone else. And God did not allow these lifestyle patterns and attitudes to go unpunished among the Hebrew people. Paul observed in verse 8, take a look. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Paul is referencing an account in Numbers 25 where the people entered sexually immoral relationships with Moabite women and were drawn into Baal worship and the Lord brought a plague among the people. Church, idolatry, indulgence, immorality, they are common bedfellows. And they were common among the Hebrew people and they're common among the people of God in Corinth here and church. They're common among we, the people of God today. It's not like somehow we've miraculously solved this age old ancient problem that's been plaguing people since Adam. It's the problem of sin. And instead of trusting in the steadfast nature of God's pristine character. And sharing in the hope that's set before us. And uniting in the person and work of Jesus. We, just like the Hebrews and Corinthian Christians before us. We put Christ to the test. Look at verses 9 and 10. We must not put Christ to the test. As some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. What does it mean to put Christ to the test? And do we still do this in the church today? And if so, how might we know that we're doing it? 
And in these verses, Paul reveals for us one of the clearest ways to know if we are putting Christ to the test in the church still today. He identifies it right at the beginning of verse 10. Are we complaining or grumbling? Words mean the same thing. Brothers and sisters in Christ, church, I don't want to be guilty of complaining about how much we complain today. But can I challenge us? And I'm going to challenge myself. And I'm preaching to myself, preaching to myself first. Uh, we need to ask Jesus' help to free us from these behaviors. They're not honoring to God. Complaining, grumbling. And I'm as guilty as everyone else here. I'm as convicted and indicted as some of you may feel. I've studied this text over the last number of weeks. And I'm telling you, the next few weeks are tough. They're tough. Paul doesn't take it easy on us. Complaining and grumbling, church, have zero place, absolutely no place in the hearts and the mouths of the Christ follower. Philippians 2, verses 14 to 16. Do some things. Do just the things that you want to do. Do just the things that you feel like doing. Do what? There's not an escape here, church. There's no easy way out. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Oh, the Hebrew people in the wilderness, they complained so much. They complained about masks. They complained about vaccines. They complained about losing their freedoms, about being controlled by their government. I mean, Moses, I'm sorry, I'm com confusing some groups of people here. Pastor Bob so eloquently covered this reality last week in his message. We didn't plan it this way. Our children led us in music ministry even regarding it. Be careful, little mouths, what you say. And didn't Jesus speak so clearly and plainly about it? It is not what goes into a person's mouth that defiles. Rather, what comes out Church, we do still put Christ to the test today. We simply don't trust him enough. We don't trust in his word enough. We don't believe that what he says is true and that he's going to do it. We still do this today. In verses 9 and 10, Paul is actually referencing accounts from the Old Testament. The first is in Numbers 21, where God sends serpents among the people, and they bite the people. You remember this? And isn't it ironic? Because the people had been biting or striking out at Moses and each other. So they themselves were bitten. People were dying. And once again, God sends Moses to the rescue. His tool this time is a golden staff. Rather ironically, do you remember what it was in the form of? 
snake irony all over this account. He lifts it up, and everyone who looks upon the snake is saved. They're healed from the poison of their wounds. Jump forward to the Gospel of John, and we've asked this question before. How was Jesus like a serpent? John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Church, we need to stop cutting one another up, biting and devouring one another. But... But before, before this will stop, before this can happen, the complaining and the grumbling actually needs to be eliminated from our own hearts and our own minds or else it will never stop coming out of our mouths. If we don't put an end to it here and here, this will not be fixed. Jesus has been lifted, church. If we've believed on him, we have eternal life set before us. Our lives here are but a vapor, we're told in the Bible. And while we are here, guess what? This is so great. While we are here, we are here in victory. Victory. Jesus wins today. He wins today, and he wins tomorrow, and he wins the next day, and he wins after that. And guess what? With Jesus, the winds keep coming for eternity. Eternity. Victors have no need to complain or grumble. I don't ever remember a Super Bowl champion standing up there with the trophy complaining. Anyone remember? I don't remember. There's no need. Win the World Series, big old pile, and everyone celebrates. No one's complaining. No one's grumbling. The cure for complaining and grumbling, church, is gratitude. Just be thankful. The second account that Paul is referencing now in verse 10, uh, we've heard of this account before. It's Korah's rebellion, which is really interesting. If you haven't read it, you need to go to Jude, read about it in Jude in the New Testament, then go back and read about it in the book of Numbers. Essentially, it's a mutiny where the grumbling amongst the people, the Hebrew people, has risen to this fever pitch, and they're actually trying to rise up and overthrow Moses and Aaron as their leaders. And again, God who is identified in this text as the destroyer, capital D, brings a plague among the people to discipline them. Now think about this. Everything that Moses and Aaron had sacrificed for these people. How many times did Moses put his very life on the line to go back into Egypt, the place where he was wanted as a criminal, and face Pharaoh? How many difficult circumstances and situations did he walk with the people through in the wilderness? And Aaron as well. And instead of being grateful for their work, the people are fearing. And in their fear, they begin to grumble. 
with the hope to eventually raise enough concern to attempt to overthrow their God-given leaders. And once again, isn't it amazing how God does this over and over and over again? Moses and Aaron are pressed to the fray, and they intercede and make atonement. Moses and Aaron, it's a beautiful account. Go to Numbers and read it. They intercede and they make atonement for the people who just earlier were trying to assemble to overthrow them. It's beautiful, and it points us to what Christ did for us. Flowing from the sins of idolatry, indulgence and immorality are these patterns and attitudes and habits of grumbling and complaining. We all think that we're our own best Lord. These are not just ancient sins, church. They're not just Greco-Roman sins. They're 21st century American Christianity sins, and we are all guilty We've put our Lord to the test in this season, perhaps. More so than any of us desire, we've put our Lord to the test. The attitudes that follow, as Paul makes us aware of these realities in the text, shouldn't be attitudes of pride or indifference or excuses or justifications. Rather, we should be a broken people. I am broken over this. For myself, for my complaining, for my heart, for my grumbling. I grieve these times in my life when I'm not thankful and I don't have enough faith to trust that God's going to be who he says he is. But I'm also thankful and hopeful that we have a God who hears us and who forgives us completely and who loves us. Without condition. Church, we're a people of the cross. The ones who live with the greatest hope. The ones who understand that true freedom is in last place. The ones who are a part of this God-ordained, Jesus-ordered, Holy Spirit-led community. We call the church a kingdom that cannot be overcome or shaken. A royal priesthood. A holy generation. Beloved sons and daughters of God. This is who we are. People of great wonder, a people of great love, a people of great thankfulness, living with the promise of God's abundant provision ever set before us. Verse 11. Now, these things have happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. Friends, we are living in the dispensation of grace, the age of the church. In a very real way, just as it was in Paul's time, it still is today. These are the end of days. The next thing to happen in God's eschatological order or end time plan is that Jesus will come back. None of us know when, but we are to live as if it were eminent as if it could happen at any moment. It will come like a thief in the night. In the blink of an eye, we are to be hopeful and prepared. 
And we have said that chapter 8 began this section of Paul's letter that's taken us all the way through uh, chapter 10 to actually chapter 11, verse 2. And remember, at the beginning of chapter 8, Paul's addressing a group of people who held knowledge above love and used their knowledge as instruments of destruction against their brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 12 is now directed at these knowers. It's directed at the self-perceived knowers that Paul has identified all the way at the beginning of chapter 8. Look at what he says in verse 12. Therefore, he's coming to a conclusion. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Friends, it is actually the one who thinks they know. The one who thinks they are standing. That is actually the one that's at a greater risk of falling away. Be careful. We sang it last week. Be careful, little ears. Be careful, little mouths. Be careful, little eyes. Pride goes before fall and a haughty eye before destruction. Paul's words here in verse 12 are closely connected to the words that he speaks back in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Look at what he says. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Paul follows this with stark reminders in chapter 9 to lay down our rights, to put ourselves in last place, and to run this race with focus and with discipline. And while we run, we're not to think we're doing it all alone or all on our own strength or by our own knowledge, lest we fall. We're doing this as the Lord is working in and through us. And there is temptation Along the way, church, there is temptation. Some of them we've identified today. Some of them we've fallen into. It's strong. It's ever present. It's not uncommon. And it is not a temptation from which there is no escape. Look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. For the people of God in Corinth, the knowers that Paul is speaking to, their temptation was to go back to those pagan temples and eat that delicious meat that was sacrificed to idols. That meat they couldn't get anywhere else, only in the temple. Sometimes their temptations were sexual in nature. Sometimes they were tempted to complain and to grumble. Church, we have a great deal many temptations in our world today. Are we tempted sometimes towards idolatry? Yeah. Are we tempted towards indulgence? Yes. Towards sexual immorality? It's out there. Towards grumbling and complaining, probably most of us every day. Temptations towards 
buying into mentalities that are individualistic, consumeristic, or materialistic. Every one of us living in this culture are threatened by those temptations. Here is our hope. God is faithful. God is faithful. And he's provided an escape. Church, the staff of the golden serpent has been lifted up. His name is Jesus. And when we face temptation, fixing our eyes, our hearts, and our minds on Jesus is the way out. Jesus is the escape. It's Jesus that gives us the eternal hope that we can endure, come what may, here on earth as we wait together for his blessed return. So how can we live as disciples of Jesus and function together as his church in this overwhelmingly unbelieving world we find ourselves in today? Growing in our awareness, we drink deeply from our spiritual rock of Christ Fleeing idolatry, indulgence, immorality, and grumbling, we endure with hope as we await his blessed return, remembering that God is faithful and in Christ he has provided our escape from temptation. Let's pray as our team comes. Lord, as we look back, at the example of those in the Old Testament. We don't do so naive to the reality that your word is to be like a mirror to us. Reflecting back the dispositions and the postures of our own hearts and our own lives and our own minds. Lord, you didn't put them there for us to look at and say, wow, glad I'm not like them. You put them there for us to look at and to discover how we can go exactly the same place they did. And so we look to your word for instructions and guidance. We look to Jesus to help carry us through this wilderness that is filled with temptation. Lord, there's temptation every day, temptation to think less of you than who you really are, temptation to doubt your word, temptation to lose our faith, to become shipwrecked on an island of social or cultural or political pinnings. And yet you are high above them all and reign above them all and are sovereign above them all and are mighty above them all. So, Lord, through the example of your people today, the Hebrew people, and through the example of the church in Corinth, I pray that you would teach us to not fall into the same trappings and temptations that they did. And when we find ourselves there, would you help us recall and remember that you are the faithful God who's provided our escape in Jesus. Thank you so much for him. In his name we pray. Amen.